Welcome to the Design Thinkers Academy London podcast, where we focus on design thinking and its role in some of the biggest issues facing society today. This podcast is an audio recording of the first event in our Good Morning Design series. In partnership with Arup, design consultancy DKNA will be holding events throughout 2023, talking to leading figures in order to explore how design can help change our world for the better. Our first event, The Equity Activists, featured Design Thinkers Academy London and DKNA founder David Kester in conversation with the social entrepreneur Poppy Jamin OBE, the HR expert Lorraine Martins OBE, and the comedian Ahir Shah. The purpose of The Equity Activists was to explore how we might create equality of opportunity through design and tap talent potential in a multicultural society. I'll hand over to David Kester so you can find out more. Hello all. Um, this is Good Morning Design, um, uh, a series of wake-up calls, if you like, exploring important design questions through the ideas and experience of inspiring pioneers in different professions and fields. So to our live audience here at 80 Charlotte Street, it's great to be with you. Um, to our online audience here, or we will have this film, so on catch-up, thank you for joining us. I'm David Kester. Um, I'm joined by social entrepreneur Poppy Jamin. Thank Welcome, you for Poppy. having me. <laughs> nice to be here. Stand-up comedian Ahir Shah. And our HR expert Lorraine Martins. So my job today is to guide a conversation on what it means to take action on social equity. And in particular, during this Race Equality Week, how can we create equality of opportunity maybe through design? How can we innovate, as it were, on the important topic of an integrated workforce that Tom was talking about? How do we go about tapping the talent that's all around us, particularly in this amazing multicultural city where we meet today? Now, there's much to discuss and in a short time, so let me explain how these Good Morning Design sessions work. In a moment, I'm going to ask our panel members to introduce themselves, but with a personal story. And I've asked each of them to pick a seminal experience that has some special meaning to them. And and rooted in these lived experiences will shift to what sort of action and activism can mean. And after our two rounds of discussion, we'll open up for some questions and debate. Um, So without further ado, let's meet our panel and in their words and through their personal stories. Um, So first, to an expert in the field of equity, diversity and inclusion, who helped deliver on the amazing legacy that is London 2012 and the Olympic Park, um, and has gone on to show what impact can look like within major employers like Network Rail, Lorraine Martins, OBE. Lorraine, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you for having me, David. So could you start by helping us sort of understand a little bit more about what we mean by equity? And I I think you've maybe got a story that you can tell, and I'm I'm thinking particularly about your first attempts to level a playing field. Fantastic. Um, So is the picture coming up? Is one we prepared earlier. (laughs) Um, So uh, equity, and and you'll have noticed that we've moved from equality to equity um, over the last, I'd say, couple of of years. if, if you look at this picture, it, it's, it's one, of the, one of my kind of understandings of equity. So if I tell the story, you'll, you'll kind of get the point. 
Um, as a little girl growing up in North London, N-O-R-F, the correct side of London, <laughs> you're uh, from London, you'll, you'll, you'll understand the, the reference. Um, I grew up not too far from here, um, uh, in um, Primrose Hill. Um, and my parents are of the Windrush generation, so they came here to get a better education for their kids. I was born here, so when, where am I from? I'm really from London. Um, and this is a, a playground. So uh, when I was young, um, playgrounds were segregated or divided, depending on what word you like to use. Um, and the boys, because they played football and were quite exuberous, they would have the larger playground, and the girls would be seated here and playing hopscotch and skipping because that's all that we were able to do. However, because my dad was Pele, um, <laughs> um, I uh, loved football. And I was always used to playing football and Pr Primrose Hill was a great park, always playing football. Um, however, during playtime <coughs> at lunchtime in school, I wasn't able to play football because the boys and the girls were not allowed to mix. So the boys had a fantastically large playground and the wall was on one side and on the other side, there we were girls playing hopscotch and the such like. So I recollect a campaign to get the wall knocked down. Um, and this was an important facet for me because it would enable me to go and play football during lunchtime and break time. And I remember this chant and us actually as little kids um, saying, we want the wall down, knock it down, kick it down. <laughs> and lo and behold, after time, magic, the wall was removed and I was enabled to play football at lunchtime or hopscotch, depending on, on my mood. And actually, it gave us a larger playground, if you can imagine the scale of, of, of a playground. It also enabled us to mix boys and girls playing together, creating, a, a, as you say, a level playing field and not divided on, on, on the basis of of gender or, or, or any of those things. So it became that we were all able to ebb and flow in that playground and, and enjoy the space. So that was my first entry into um, thinking about fairness and equity and having an opportunity to do something that I would love to do but was prevented to, from doing through physical barriers and through strictures that were saying actually girls do this and boys do that. And, and did, did it actually have an impact in terms of your, you know, your own, I mean, because I know you're, you're an Arsenal fan. I mean, so, uh, a happy Arsenal I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean did, did that actually have an impact on your success on the playing field, as it were? Um, ab yeah, absolutely, because this is a bit I didn't tell you. I used to, I used to represent Primrose Hill Primary School um, at football. So, yes, it, it enabled me to participate. And I would have been one of the few, few, few girls. You've got Premiership football, <laughs> WSL football now. In, in my day, that, that was never an option. So I one represented my, 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 my school at a primary school level. Um, but also, I, I think it, it, it just enabled me to, 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 to feel involved and feel included and, and being able to participate. And that enables engagement and growth and, and learning and all of those things. Um, but there was a caveat. Um, and in terms of representing uh, my school, my parents were really clear that, um, yeah, all right, she, she's really good at sports, but actually she's also academic. And she is in no way, Sheila Rain, is in no way going to represent your school if she's not being successful and being challenged academically. So there was a, a kind of playoff and a challenge, again, for my parents, because a lot of black children, we were channeled 
into sporting activities and less so into our academic um, activities. No, well, thank you, Lorraine. And that's a really poignant story. And I think it sets up our conversation very well, equity and levelling the playing field. Now, if you enjoy comedy and particularly sharp inquiry and political satire, you'll find it hard to miss our next guest. He sells out at Edinburgh. He's a regular on TV and radio from Have I Got News For You, The MASH Report, Live at the Apollo, Mock the Week, and on and on. He is, of course, Ahir Shah. Um, so, Ahir, thank you for joining us. Um, so, Ahir, look, the Mayor of London, as we know, as we've heard from Tom, wants to create opportunity for, in his words, all of us. And he wants an integrated workforce where all the talents in our great multicultural city have an equality of opportunity. So, I mean, from your perspective, I think drawing on your own experience, what were the ingredients that combined to turn, as it were, a Wembley lad into a successful stand-up comedian? Well, uh, so firstly, uh, thank you very much uh, for having me. It's particularly nice to be around people from the construction industry because they will finally understand uh, that I will sort of go over by about 10%, but still under-deliver. Uh, and, uh, uh, I will also say to Lorraine's point, what, uh, you really reminded me of, uh, so when I was eight, the primary school that I was at, uh, the playground was like, there was a strip that was like the hard bit, and there was a strip that was the grass bit, and the little bit in the middle was just like concrete mixed with jagged stones uh, for some reason. And I was just, you know, running around uh, as you do, uh, tripped and fell, hit the back of my head on that. So my head's now glued together and I've got a bit of a bald patch uh, over there. Uh, so I can note from personal experience that uh, playground divisions are actively physically dangerous as well as uh, anything else. So uh, thank you for removing one of them and uh, <laughs> thank my head for removing another one. Um, so, yes, I, I chose as an image this um, particular part of my high school, which is um, Preston Manor uh, High School in Wembley, northwest uh, London. Again, correct pronunciation. Um, and I chose this bit uh, because I always think about a conversation that I had outside that drama room uh, when I was 15, uh, where it was the, the, the sort of conversation had begun about, like, our kids thinking about going to university uh, or whatnot. Um, and I think that the things that over the course of this conversation I will bore on about uh, no end are representation and education, which are sort of obviously uh, like crucially important. Uh, and this to me sort of uh, combines those two uh, elements because it was with a few kids sitting on that step uh, on the left and the other standing around, we were talking about uh, whether we were thinking of going to uni, uh, and someone said, oh, Ahir is probably going to go Oxford or something. Uh, and I said, no, that's for rich white people. Uh, right. And I very thankfully particularly had a dad who convinced me out of that way of thinking. Yeah. Uh, but it was still instructive to me that that's what at 15 it was not a controversial statement to say that in a group like when i said that everyone else was like oh yeah good point <laughs> uh, right um and then thankfully 15 year old ahir was talked out of it by his dad and by a couple of really important teachers yeah. uh, and three years later found himself at cambridge uh but was for, uh, like very aware that 
not everyone went to that sort of school and had that sort of conversation on those sorts of steps, uh, right? Uh, and indeed, it was only a few days ago that I got an email from Miss Wilding, who I contacted to ask her for those pictures, that um, someone else from my school had got into Cambridge to do uh, what was Social and Political Sciences when I did it. It's now, now got a different name, but um, I'd, I was like overwhelmingly thrilled. I was like, Oh, that's not happened for 15 years, <laughs> uh, right? Like that, I got my letter 15 years ago and she got hers uh, now. So on the one hand, extremely thrilled uh, that that had changed, but also seemed instructive of the distance that there is to go because, again, with the people who I met who went to your Eatons and Westminsters and all of that sort of thing, on a 15-year gap there. I remember you saying that you read the... A statement, the personal statement mm. from Miss Wilding, and actually you weren't too thrilled. Yeah, but uh, Miss Wilding's clearly been at that school too long. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I wasn't. I, I, so I read it, and there was a thing that was incredibly important to all of us that we, we were all sort of extremely proud of where we were from, and we didn't want anyone looking down on us because of who we were or where we were from, etc., etc. And so when I read. Uh, the personal statement, uh, like, you know, the teacher's part of the yeah. statement uh, that she put in. And she had put in uh, just sort of facts about the school, about, like, we are one of the largest schools in Brent, which is one of the most deprived boroughs in the country. We have, like, the proportion of children on free school meals at this school is several multiples of the national average, all of these sorts of things. For And my immediate reaction was to say to her, like, why are you telling them this? Like, that's, that's not like, you're making us look better, come on, guys. Like, <laughs> uh, we, we and obviously, in retrospect, I understand exactly why yeah. uh, she was saying it, because it, it, because there are, there are fewer of us who end up uh, in, in those situations later, uh, everything. And yet, yeah, at the time, it felt like sort of wounded pride of like, Hold on, but we're not we're not those numbers. Yeah. You're talking about me and my mates, uh, and like, yeah, you ca you can't sum us up like that. I, I mean, I remember you saying that you, which is an amazing thing, that by the time you were 15, you were already doing stand-up comedy, mm. um, which is pretty extraordinary and very brave. But you you sort of got the bug very very early on. I, I mean, I, I mean, when I think back to my childhood, the role models in terms of comedy weren't there but they were maybe I mean what was what was the inspiration for you so for me it was in the late I was born in 1990 and it was in the late 90s sitting in my grandparents house and it would be me my mum my dad my sister and my grandparents uh, every week would watch goodness gracious me uh, on the BBC and it was this utterly like revelatory thing and particularly given that like my, my grandmother's got a pretty good sense of humor, but my grandfather in particular was not someone, it was a very serious man uh, and didn't laugh, certainly not at himself. Uh, and this was like, not not through choice, but through this, the way that life had made him, right? It's like, it's, um, you know, he, he had to, he had to be quite sort of stern given the, given the circumstances in which he'd come here and what he had to do uh, when he got here. And to watch him in particular laughing like a drain at himself at what he saw in himself uh was just this like astonishingly shocking thing and like that was what i watched i was like i want to do that i want to make i want to make nanaji 
feel like that and I've got like the way that it brought the whole family together so I can like it's sort of unusual to be able to say but it's like oh why do you do the thing that you do and I'm like oh their names are Sanjeev Bhaskar, Mira Sayal, Nino Arya and Kulvinder Gear. That, that's that's why so it's like the more interesting question is how the hell did they end up doing that because uh, they didn't have themselves they had to be the first yeah. Uh, and yet we're so inspiring for so But many. actually, interestingly, media and culture there was sort of providing a sort of more welcoming environment. But actually, maybe some of that, what we've become known as the hostile environment, actually was, was, was there too. And I, I know that the, having seen some of your material, and you and I have talked about it, that the, I'm just thinking of the word duffer and what that means for you. Am I, is that okay if I uh, yeah, ask you yeah. about that? Uh, yeah, so I... It's well, I'm wearing a suit now, so you can't see it. But that's the word that's tattooed in Gujarati on my uh, arm over there. So it's a uh, dafor, uh, which means sort of fool and clown and that sort of uh, thing. But it's uh, it's what my my grandmother's uh, nickname for me when I was uh, little. That she chased me around calling me dafor, uh, and ended up being her last word to me as well. Um, but um, basically, so she moved it like a few weeks after I was born. Uh, came to the UK because my grandfather in India had passed away and so my dad being her eldest son was like yeah come uh, live here and she was deported uh, when we were uh, sorry, when I was five or four or five um, and yeah that, that became another sort of example of because someone was a statistic or a set of numbers or what have you it didn't matter that she was sort of the anchor that was holding this family uh, in so many ways or this like that she had no one else really in the world to, who, who was able to look after her uh, at the time. Um, and sort of those, the, the human elements of that didn't matter as much as um, the, the sort of like, well, form wasn't filled incorrectly, bye-bye. Um, well, I mean, maybe we'll come back to how you channeled a lot of those experiences in your work. Um, but thank you very much, Ohan. Some very poignant, powerful stories there. Now, in your place of work, wherever it is, you may have a mental health first aider. Um, this mental health workplace revolution and, and much else besides is a product of a life dedicated to mental health by our next panelist. She is global CEO of the Mind Forward Alliance and appears on almost every list, as I see, of game-changing women of our day. She is Poppy Jamin, OBE. Poppy, Am I welcome. the only person who doesn't have an OBE? I, I, I didn't want to point that out. Uh, uh, We're going to make you. It's all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honorary. Equity. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, order of British equity. Exactly. <laughs> um, the, 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 so I, I think the question I want to ask is, how do we begin to understand, because th th this word often gets bandied around of intersectional issues, and I'm quite interested in exploring that a little bit. And I think your own story, I think, highlights some of these points. So how do we begin to understand some of the sort of more complex intersecting factors that can hold back talent um, and, 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 and the importance, perhaps, of financial independence? So maybe, Poppy, you can tell us a little bit about your uh, early experiences. Yeah, thank you. Um, and again, just so great to be live with people and not squares on a screen like I'm so... As you can see, I got very excited about <laughs> it. Was, um, but look, I, I, so this picture is, is of my dad and me in <coughs> Bangladesh. And this would have been 
just before I came to this country. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, I love this picture. So it's, and, and <clears throat> my dad passed away at the age of 64, I think it was, and only and about seven years ago. And that was really young. And actually, but that's quite a common story for British Bengali men of that generation that came to the UK. Um, well, actually, it was my granddad who came to the UK as part of the uh, the East India Company that was bringing in all the spices and the chai and the reason why we've got great food in this country, right? So, but it's true, before that we were doing cabbage and potatoes. So as much as I love cabbage and potatoes, but, but, but so, so granddad's generation, dad, granddad um, worked in the merchant navy for about 20 years, right up until the 60s. And then, and then there were, you know, he was part of a, a lonely group of what we, so my, my observation is that it's, he was part of a lonely group of young men who were recruited because they were great on boats and cleaning the decks and doing the menial jobs and then cooking for the masters of the, and so we've got, I mean, we've got one of the other pictures that I nearly put on was we've got granddad's original documents, which have ripped now, but it calls him a boy on there. Yeah. But, um, but he's a good boy, excellent at his work. Um, so it's quite, it's quite interesting. So anyway, my family ended up in Portsmouth because of the docks there. And then when dad was 12, granddad went back to Bangladesh and dad And to for the for, for economic migration for work, you know. So, yeah. how do you continue supporting the family back home? So, and that is a that is not unusual. That is like a common story. If you speak to forty-year-old Bengalis, which I'm in my mid-forties, that most of us will have a story that's similar, which is our granddads came over to work, invited to work, and then our families came over. So, yeah, yeah, same, same. So, the, the, so, so, so then. Um, and then, but one of, like, so I was, mum and I were one of the early uh, Bengali families in Bangladeshi families in Portsmouth, which is where I grew up, um, because, again, in those early days, men didn't bring their wives over because this wasn't the environment to, that they wanted to raise families. However, granddad recognised that he had had a very lonely 26 years and he didn't want his son to have the same experience, so he insisted that my mum and I joined dad so yeah. that's how we ended up in in this country um and i guess i guess then you know growing up in the 80s in this country i mean it's it, it just speaks for itself like if you haven't watched goodness gracious me you need to watch a couple of episodes of that and it sort of nails it but most of us that are working in that space are drawing drawing from those experiences back then um so I grew up in in this country. I was raised as a um, I was raised in a very interesting way. Again, so family were very keen. If you if you can imagine, my dad came over when he was twelve. Mum came over in I think when she was early twenties with a baby in Portsmouth. There's no other Bengali families. Really lonely. Mum would. Um, would be so dad was running by this time dad was running a restaurant so the merchant navy stuff had finished 
dad was in, they'd bought a restaurant in Portsmouth with a, a group of them and dad was working there. But mum was sat with me upstairs in a room 24 hours a day. And so she would come downstairs when the restaurant was closed. And she just said that was suffocating. Coming from Bangladesh where there's a village and you'd go to walk and there's green space and family and community, here she was in this country locked in a room with an 18-month-year-old um, for, for hours on end. So, so that was probably the beginnings of my mother's early um, undiagnosed mental health conditions. So now you've got me who is being raised in this country, um, who is supporting mum and dad, mum in language skills, mum's not healthy in, in, in many ways. Um, and I've got two younger brothers as well who, who, who are fab, and, um, but actually I've become quite old quite quickly because you're the person that's doing yeah. everything. So, so, so look, fast-tracking, the intersect of gender inequality, the intersect of poverty that, is, that, is, that underpins all of this. Then the, the dilemmas of a migrated community who are holding on to values because they are going to go back home, but they never make it home. Yeah. And before you know it, you've got three kids in this country and me, um, incredibly rebellious. So head girl at school, bunking school at the same time as being head girl at school. <laughs> How I pulled that off, I don't know. Like, but, but, but I did. So I was just identity crisis. I then get taken back to Bangladesh and I get a forced marriage. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Mm. So that's a, that's a, that was a huge thing. I mean, you had aspiration. I, I remember you telling me, you, you thought, I'm going to be an engineer, I'm going to be a scientist. Mm. And then tell us a little bit about what happened there. Yeah, so I guess what I what happened for me was I remember very early on thinking the only way out of this life is education, like mm. the life that I've got is education. The only way out of Portsmouth is education. But for me, there wasn't that pathway wasn't what was being led for me. So my family were raising me to be a good daughter-in-law and a good mm. wife and a good mother. And at school I was excelling at all the sciences. Um, but I remember teachers saying, "Well, it's a shame you're clever because you're only going to have a marriage. You're only going mar to get married anyway." And I'd be like, "No, I'm not." And then, of course, I did. <laughs> and um, and that was probably the beginnings of my mental health struggles. So so I got married. I'm incredibly committed to whatever I do. So here I am in this marriage. Did it for seven years. Had my first in in back in Bangladesh. Yeah. Um, but I, but I did I did come back over so yeah. I came back over I got a I got a job I got um, no no I I had um, I gave birth to my first daughter who's twenty six um, and and that was when my depression came to the surface because you know you have a lot of health practitioners that see you and I remember my health visitor saying to me I took her in took my daughter in for an appointment and my health visitor saying to me you're right and I just just fell apart and she got me a doctor we anyway I got diagnosed with postnatal depression and in hindsight it was never postnatal depression it was trauma from mm. and it was generational trauma like if you look at granddad and then like what you're talking about your granddad not laughing but actually that had a positive that drove you to create change that's generational enhancement 
But what I recognize, well, I had the opposite of some of that generational trauma from people not being lonely and actually that being passed down through dad, mom, and then and then myself. Poppy, I remember you you saying to me, and I thought it was very poignant. I mean, you, you've gone through these ex- extraordinary experiences. You've, been, you, you've effectively been sent back to Bangladesh. You've, you, you've, you've, you're in an arranged marriage. You've had a child. Um, so, you know, um, you, you've come back to the UK, and I, I remember you talking to me about how important getting a job was, yeah. and the importance of um, the, the sort of financial independence really. Um, but in there is also you've got to have the employer that has some insight, yeah. um, sees the potential and also can see what's going on so that they can provide s- some of the support that you need. And that's actually a very delicate issue. I mean, were, were, were there allies, as it were? Without allies, I wouldn't be here. So I just think it's nobody, I don't ever believe in like, so anybody's self-made, that's nonsense. There's a bit of luck that needs to play out, but also you need a lot of people that are on your side. So, so I now, and have dedicated my career to workplace mental health. I believe workplaces can create the opportunity for change in anybody's life. And actually, I believe that mental health needs to be taken out of health system onto kitchen tables, into places like this. And the reason why I believe that is got depression, medication wasn't helping, therapy was culturally so irrelevant, it was unbelievable. I did, I have, I've got, I've been through loads of um, great therapists since, I don't think I'd be here without my therapists and coaches, but the early days was just really inappropriate um, therapy and I didn't know that then so I decided seeing the very strong work ethics in my family I decided to get a job and I got a job that paid like I think it was like 60 quid and I was on benefits which was 63 quid so I got a job that was going to pay me less than what I was on benefits but it gave me purpose and it gave me meaning and it gave me agency and it put me on the on the road to recovery that was the thing that healed me and the reason the, the single most important factor in that was a line manager that got it i never disclo- i didn't know i had i didn't know how to describe mental illness postnatal depression etc i mean this is 26 years ago so you didn't talk about this stuff you didn't know that you could talk about it you didn't know how to talk about it there wasn't the language there uh, mental health first aid has changed that, by the way. So you should do the course. Um, but um, but you so so I but my manager was an amazing, inspiring woman. She, I think, she just picked up on the signals that I wasn't all right. And what she then did was gave me interesting projects, encouraged me to look at um, look at going back to education um, she just built up my confidence mm. she just checked in on she spotted talent and was like what are you doing here why are you doing this 16 hour job at citizens advice bureau and how can I help get you out of here and move you on to something more more aligned to what you should be doing yeah so yeah like and that was one of many allies and mentors so allyship, we've also just explored there that, that whole issue around sort of a whole range of intersecting issues, cultural and, and other. Um, thank you, Poppy. Um, and, and actually, thank you, here Lorraine, also, for introducing yourselves with that sort of candor, uh, humor, honesty, and sharing these early stories. So 
each of you in different ways, and I think this is very interesting, has actually gone on to channel these lived experiences and to great positive effect. And that's actually really what we want to now discuss. So what being activist and proactive looks like. Maybe the difference between, say, not being racist and being anti-racist. Um, how we might make a difference and influence change as individuals, um, but also within and on behalf of businesses and actually even whole sectors that we work within. And I, I, I want to pass back to Lorraine here. I mean, here we are in the HQ of one of the world's foremost engineering design firms, one with a proud history and strong social values, um, and a company that lives and breathes civil infrastructure and mega projects. But, there is a but, um, a little bit of what Kate was saying, but more, because this is not a sector we associate with diversity. According to the Royal Academy of Engineering, these are these last two years' uh, statistics, only 9% of engineers, 9% of engineers in the UK are from BAME backgrounds. And that is despite 27% of first degree qualifiers being from these groups. And the figures are similarly extraordinary, actually parlous for women. According to Engineering UK, only 16.5% of engineers are women. That's just in one sector, the very important sector. So, Lorraine, I mean, can you give us some hope here? Um, <laughs> how do you organise an enterprise? And how do you take and maintain action on equity and deliver? Um, I'm very interested in sort of how you take the sort of values that you've got in a company like Arab and you actually turn that into a relentless norm. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that, that, that underpins that and that commitment and that intent is having a strategic approach. Mm. So really clearly articulating um, what it is you achieve, what your intention is and, and what good looks like, but also not being afraid to, to articulate what the challenges are. And I think increasingly in this space, it's really important that those business that, businesses that say they want to have a more diverse and inclusive um, environment set that roadmap out mm. that allows you to have some rigour around understanding what you need to do and how you need to do it. And within that, then you, 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 you drive the values and you hold people to account and you're really transparent about um, your efforts and what's getting in the way. Um, so those things, I think, mm. kind of underpin um, helping you to make change. So if you don't have a plan, then you're not really going to be able to succeed. And people won't understand um, where you are in terms of, of, of that journey. To, to so tell us a little bit about this plan. What, was that, how did the, how, what, what happened on oh. this extraordinary project you were involved in? So Kate, you might remember this. <laughs> So um, here we are in the east end of London. Um, remember, um, this was um, before you, any of these buildings or, uh, were, were designed. It was brownfield sites. Um, I don't know if any of you from East London, I'm looking at, I'm going to make a, a, a kind of guess, had a, a guess. I can see one person who might be around my age. There used to be a, a, a place <laughs> in the east end here called Shinola's, which if any of you... I never thought I'd ever say that word in an Arab environment, but it's a place we used to rave. Um, <laughs> there used to be a bus station there, 
fridge mountains. Um, you could not, you could not get from Hackney to Stratford without it taking about an hour. Um, public transport didn't really enable it. So we really created a city within a city. And what you can see there is the Alcelsior uh, orbit, the stadium, which I think West Ham now inhabit, uh, the uh, aquatics which, with the wings on, which was designed to have um, more seating during uh, games time. That's all taken away now, so that it's being used um, as, as part of the better franchise for treatment. You can see the the um, to the to the left there. You can see the uh, uh, athletics village and Westfield. I don't know if any of you like shopping. It's a haven there. Um, and the River Lee, which was rerouted so that it could go through. And you can walk now along the banks of, of that river from Hackney, from Clapton, right through to, to Stratford. So we built it with a, with a view to its future use, um, which I think we've managed to achieve. So mixed uh, 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 housing, uh, facilities are absolutely used to their fullness, and the transport infrastructure that got you from King's Cross to, to, to Stratford within about eight or so minutes. So I, I, I lived in one of those flats for a year. Uh, afterwards, yeah, in like 2017, 18. So that, it worked. Thanks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My work is done. Um, but, but the other thing that's really important is this was an area that without that level of investment wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened. It was an area, the east end of London, the five host boroughs, which were Hackney, uh, Waltham Forest, Newham, Greenwich, and of course you're going to forget the fifth one because it was somewhere on... Somewhere, what's, the other, what's the other fifth... Fifth Borough, Kate, I can't remember. Tower Hamlets, Old Ring, Tower Hamlets, absolutely. Um, th those areas were all uh, on the, the kind of negative indices of, of, of social outcomes. So high unemployment, um, disproportionately poor health outcomes, poor academic attainment, all of these features um, were writ large here. A lack of employment for um, people from black, Asian, or minority ethnic um, um, backgrounds, you know, overqualified and underemployed, all of those things were writ large there. And that is not too far away, I'd say about a mile away from Canary Wharf, which had been built and, and, and had supposedly been built to, to kind of enhance the community, but feel, felt like a kind of gated um, community as Canary Wharf. So you'll, you'll see all the, the, the kind of Barclay buildings, which in fact was where our offices were. Barclays, HSB, all of that kind of new, newly formed sector was not a stone's throw away really from, from this area. So the intent and the plan was really about how do you address some of those inequalities that exist in the east end of London through this regeneration project, which is the largest regeneration project in Europe. How do you make sure that the target audience, the, 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 the local people benefit from that investment? And I guess that's what we were setting out to, to, to do and making sure that um, women, that people from black, Asian, minority ethnic backgrounds, disabled people, LGBT plus community, everybody had a, an investment in, in this area. So we set out a plan. Um, we enabled or coaxed and cajoled our suppliers to sign up to that plan and we held them to account. And we were really rigorous in terms of measuring 
our performance and reporting on our performance. And we're also operating in a goldfish pond. So everybody was watching what we were doing. Everybody was keen to, yeah. to see whether or not we would be successful or whether or not we would be painting the seats the night before the, the games were off. So we had you know, this fixed deadline by which this needed to be ready for the world to play the games. So we built the stage. But then beyond that, leave a legacy that the people would benefit from. And actually, I mean, there's a lovely slide if we just fast forward a little bit, just look at the next slide. I think this, I mean, I don't know whether you want to say a word about this, but I think this was, um, was, it, was this International Women's Day? This was absolutely International Women's Day, and I forget the year, of course, she said. Kate, you're probably in there somewhere, I'm guessing. I think there's a beautiful person over there. Yeah, there is. Um, <laughs> so what we attempted to do, one of, one of the key things that we wanted to do was increase the number of women that were working um, on the construction of the Olympic Park. And so this picture is where we got as many women as we could that were working on the park to be on, on the park. And are you in there, Kate? Of course you are. Good, brilliant. And so um, this was like a first because people, you know, if you see it, you can believe it, right? And um, we've got a range of different uh, disciplines that are represented here. And all, all of the people have uh, um, working about so engineers, architects, designers, um, bus drivers, uh, scaffolders, plasterers, the whole range of things that you, people that you need to 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 build um, a city uh, mm. represented, and it's all women. And um, we had a project called Women into Construction, where we enabled our supply chain to have women work with them for a set period of time. We supported the women in terms of their transport, childcare needs, and um, gave them an opportunity to try out some of the different skills and disciplines that you need in, in terms of construction. And uh, it gave our supply chain uh, labor, and it gave us an opportunity to give uh, a chance for women to experience what it was like to work in construction. And through that experience, a number of uh, the majority of our supply chain took on those women, and then therefore gave them employment. And they were surprised at the the level of skills and commitment. But and not everybody. I mean, one of the things I want, to, and I'd love to get because you have to sort of not only set out your values and set out your plan, but you also have to sort of be a bit rigorous. So you have to almost have to police this because you can't let people backslide. And I, I seem to remember that you were pretty fierce, or actually you had the support of people who could be fierce for you. Yeah. And I wondered whether you could just say a word about that, because that seemed to be actually quite important here, that, you, that however, however big and important you were, say, as a tier one contractor, maybe actually you still have to be accountable. So we had a, a diversity and inclusion board that was um, chaired by our uh, chief exec, Sir David Higgins, and it was comprised of all of the chief execs of the tier one supply chain. And so he called them all together. So, you know, this is a great and good, and we're all here doing big boy stuff, and it is big boy stuff, inverted commas. Um, and so... We, the, the, and I remember this very clearly. This is my first meeting at, at the board. Um, and we're talking about, well, these are the plans we want to get 
X percent of black, Asian and minority ethnic people in, in situ and disabled people and women. And we want to do this as we're building that part. And one firm said, yeah, I know, I know, you, I know you want to do it, right? But really, what we're here to do is to build stuff. So this other thing you're talking about, about getting this diverse people in, I mean, that's, 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 that's really difficult. I'm, I'm not sure we can sign up to them. And um, the reason I remember that is because we never saw that person again and they were no longer working on the project. So that's a really important signal to everybody else on the board of our intent and our seriousness and our rigour that, yes, we've said it and actually we mean it and we want everybody who is participating and contributing to this project to be on the same page. And so we never heard that statement again because actually there's a ripple effect, right? You are right, you, you are serious. When you say you want more women and you want more, more black people on part, you're going to ask me and I'm going to have to answer and I'm going to have to do something and we're going to have to be held to account in a very transparent way. So yeah, that stuff about others being fierce for you is fantastic. I, I really wasn't fierce at all. Um, <laughs> she said. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I mean, and I, I, I want to bring it in uh, here, here because um, I mean, we've, what we've been hearing about there is having a, having a strategy, um, policing it well. Um, but I think we're all conscious that there are a lot of companies and organisations, and we've probably got one or two here, that have really good EDI policies and good people, EDI people, and actually are constantly monitoring stuff, but not a lot's changing. Um, and I, I, I want to bring in our professional satirist and comedian here on the subject of speaking truth to power. Because, you know, it is two and a half years since George Floyd, and that seemed like a watershed. But then again, it's 20 years since Stephen Lawrence. And look at the pickle that, you know, the Met is in at the moment on institutional racism and misogyny. So do we all need to be, I mean, there was, we heard a little bit of a story there of being intolerant of inertia or bad attitudes, as it were, but what can we learn about, you know, how we challenge the status quo here? Uh, so before, oh yes, I've, I've chosen a very frightening question. <laughs> uh, um, so I wanted to actually, before getting onto that, uh, take you up on yeah. what they, and it's just like, I think that the, like, uh, when you talk about like policing a thing, like yeah. uh, like that sounds like frightening and terrible. Like oh, I don't <laughs> want to be policed, like I, I, yeah. I, I, and whatnot. Whereas I think that the better, like this is not like uh, oh, I suppose if we have to uh, and everything. It's that actually like when you include everyone who's going to have a stake in something, like the outcomes are better uh, exactly. and everything. Right? Yes. Like, it doesn't make sense. Like I, I know that the really famous uh, example is Caroline Criado Paris's one about like all crash test dummies being made on like male bodies. So if you get in a car crash and you don't have the sort of average male body, you're fucked, uh, right? Uh, and, everything. and it's like, yeah, the outcomes are worse because people were only designing for one scenario of the default human being, right? So if you escape from the notion of there being a default human being, then it's gonna be better. And mm. that I think like is a more positive way of looking at the way that outcomes can be improved rather than exactly. like policing a thing that seems like this person who comes to you and is like, oh, do we have to? Like, come on, we're just here to build things. You'll build better things uh, if you... Uh, um, 
right? So in terms of, and in terms of what sort of comedy does and everything, and I don't make any sort of great claims for it, uh, right? This is not going to be the mechanism whereby the world has changed uh, and whatnot. I think that the useful thing that uh, comedy can do, or the reason that uh, sort of issues like racism and whatnot are really great areas for comedy is because they are absurd, right? It is like... It's dumb, uh, right? It's a, it's a really ridiculous thing uh, to think that, like, you or I might... Well, I suppose people would think that I'd probably make a better doctor, but, uh, like, that's... Uh, uh, there are Jewish but, like, doctors. There are yeah, Jewish yeah, doctors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very true. We're really dominating. <laughs> but it, it would be absurd. Like, it is ridiculous to think that there is a sort of inherent uh, sort of difference between what we would be capable of or what have you and the entire thing that we're trying to get to is realizing that yes these are these are like superficial things uh and whatnot um so the, the reason that i wanted to talk about uh these fine people um is that i i also do think that in britain we can sort of like, you know, there's very much uh, the national character of sort of talking down any achievements or what have you that, that we have uh, done. It is really remarkable that that guy is prime minister of this country. Like, that's mental, right? Like, it, it's, like it, it's a thing that I did not think would be a thing in my lifetime when I was a child and is now remarkable for how little it is remarked upon. Right. It's uh, the fact that, oh, yeah. And Prime Minister Sunak. Said, and every so often I hear the phrase Prime Minister Sunak and I'm like, what? <laughs> like, it's like my, my, my grandfather would never have believed that. Like, I, I remember like when Sadiq became mayor or something. And I was like, I wish that my grandfather was still alive, that he would, he would never have thought that yeah. this uh, sort of thing could be possible. I do not politically agree with these people. The fact that they are in the positions that they are is remarkable and does say something really good about us as a country, right? So don't downplay it. Do you think that the cabinet in Germany or France or anything looks like what the cabinet in Britain looks like? We're not the only country that had an empire or that has ethnic diversity uh, within us. There are many European countries uh, that was like, no one is like, I, I honestly believe that Britain is the least racist country in the world. I just think that that says more about the world than it does about Britain, uh, right? Um, and so... I think let's also sort of ha have some acknowledgement of um, the stuff that we, that, that we are at least moving in the right direction and we don't have to see ourselves as, oh, we're poor old blighty, we're definitely the worst and we're uh, you know, always going to be at the back of the pack um, in every regard. Um, and I think a another thing that I think draws on this um, and draws on some of the stuff that we were talking about earlier that I'd like to bring up. So, as I say, like... When I was growing up, I never felt that I was a member of any sort of minority because I grew up in Wembley in northwest London and the schools that I went to, everyone was from everywhere and you were just like, oh, that's just how the world is, right? The only times that I became aware that I was in any sort of minority as when I was a child was when I watched television and I was like, oh, no, nothing looks like school, uh, right? And, and nothing looks like um, the area, which is why something like Goodness Gracious Me was so cool. Uh, when I and you know I fast forward now 25 years after I was watching that the thing that I love watching now more than anything is if you show me a documentary about Crossrail or the Times Tideway uh, Thames Tideway Tunnel or something I'm, I'm watching the hell out of that uh, right and as you said earlier 
very shocking. Like I knew that it was skewed. I didn't realize how skewed that only 16% of people working mm. in engineering uh, women. One of the things that I always note about those documentaries is that the makers of it clearly are doing something like to be like, right, we want to make sure that it is, and particularly young women uh, who are at the forefront, and are like, oh, that's cool. Like a bit down the line, if I've got an eight-year-old daughter, she doesn't know that it's 16% of the workforce uh, <laughs> who are in it. Just, just like, oh, that's me in that. I could, I could dig a massive tunnel. That's pretty cool uh, and everything. And yeah, I, I think that it does say something for the country, something positive for the country, that there is now a... Gener there is a generation of Londoners who are like, oh yeah, Mayor Khan, that's normal. And a generation of young British children is like, what's the, do you know the name of the Prime Minister? Oh yeah, Rishi Sunak. Uh, and that, yeah. So, it's so role models being incredibly important and in your industry as well. And I, I, I want to actually sort of build on that because you were saying there a little bit about the incent, you know, we don't want to be policing. Seems like a really, you know, seems like a negative word in this context. Even though sometimes you have to hold people to account. Mm. Um, actually, the, you know, the benefits of the of having a more diverse workforce, of an integrated workforce. I mean, they should be self-evident. Um, it's it's, it's utilization rather than it's like it's utilizing every part of like why are you going to, you know, cut yourself off uh, from sort of vast way, like uh, with what you were mentioning at the beginning, like I couldn't believe that there was such a discrepancy, like those those graduate employment rates. That's insane to me, like as you're saying, like these are two people that, you know, on paper, everything in the CV is identical other than this, uh, which should not be a relevant uh, concern uh, as far as I'm concerned. And yet you have the discrepancy, like what, what that discrepancy is is also like a gigantic as you say economic inefficiency uh, like think of how much we're needlessly holding ourselves back by saying that ah oh, you with your great engineering degree is gonna get that job get that pressure and get and the other guy when there's only this superficial difference is not gonna get that well i mean it, and, and i I'd, I'd like to bring poppy in here because um Poppy, you've, you've been very much at the forefront of a huge wave, wave of change and awareness on mental health. But you've done that, yes, through campaigning and activism, but actually by bringing business on side and working very collaboratively and actually helping people see the benefits of why they should do something rather than actually sort of berating them. So c could you talk a little bit I mean, on the, the, the role of business in securing change? Yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, I, I shared that workplace mental health be has, has become a lifetime's passion. And um, the way that I, when I was running Mental Health First Aid and actually the first company, I think, that the first big brand to buy Mental Health First Aid were Unilever and Ernst & Young, you know, EY and Unilever. And, and I remember sitting in the chief medical office officer's um, room in Unilever going, like literally pinching myself thinking, oh my God, like Unilever are actually gonna roll this thing out. Shit, <laughs> like, is it any good? Is it, how, <laughs> how, is it, how is it gonna land? But, but now, Mental Health First, when I left Mental Health First Aid, I mean, I took it out of a Department of Health project, which was minus 200,000, and as I left it, it turned over 10 million. 
and it was a social enterprise and so purity of purpose was not in doubt mm. you know i should have been a millionaire but i'm not <laughs> um but and but it was and then i was like okay this is but but that opened the door which was businesses aren't made of terrible people like businesses are made of incredible people and brilliant minds and most of those people want to do the right thing but if you've had an education that doesn't expose itself to people like us you are you are you are so how do that intersect is really important that exposure to different cultures district communities is really important so so i figured the only way that i was ever going to really create a legacy of change is is to get the biggest brands in the world to adopt a mental health strategy and get their leaders talking about it and create a culture of openness so so that's that's what that was that became the next mission in mm. in life so that was how the city mental health alliance and now we're called mind forward alliance so if i give you um 10 years ago there was about 10 companies uh, goldman's kpmg linklaters hogan lovell so magic circle law firms a number of big investment banks hey, like there's about 10 of us now we're in hong kong australia singapore new zealand um Portugal, which I'm about to change into Europe, um, India I mentioned. So we're in seven markets and I've set a global strategy that we're going to be in at least half the world within the next five years with big companies, mainly from the financial services sector, because that's where we were born out of, um, to create a culture of mental health. And what that then means is we're literally working with um, businesses and they're mainly chief executives or boards help them pull together a mental health strategy that includes education, training, how leaders are talking about it. And why they're not, that they're not just doing that because it's a good thing to do. If you look at one in four stat for mental health, why don't you then overlay that with black people and women and disability? I mean, and, and you, you've got a significant Again, problem. Again, the intersectional yeah. points. Exactly. You've got a significant problem in society. So you could end up excluding about 30% of the people in society and in your workforce who aren't feeling belonging. Like you might, you're probably employing people, you are employing people with lived experience of all of those discriminatory factors. But actually, if you can foster belonging in the workplace, you enhance that person's opportunity to be loyal and give more and have a fulfilling life. So my view is from an employee perspective, like, I want to work in a place that is part of my well-being toolkit and doesn't just pay my mortgage. Like, and that's, and that's the sell. So business leaders are doing this all over the world because they attract and retain talent, which is efficiency. That's one of the things that keeps people up. When, when, if I lose yeah. my talented key people, my project's fucked. So actually, like, that's important because I've got children who are health difficulties and I want to change the world so it's more accepting because I've had my own struggle and and so this is business leaders context and I guess it, I speak for myself within that is because I've had my own struggles and actually I'm not written off I've led two brilliant social enterprises that have changed the DNA of this country and and hopefully the DNA of workplace globally that that that's somebody who has got GCSEs. I did go back and do my master's in MBA. I did want to do engineering, but 
it, I genuinely did want to be an engineer, but um, maybe next life. But but yeah. Um, but yeah. So this that's you know a, a nineteen year old who had a forced marriage, a single parent, no GCSEs, um, and and a bit of passion that came from being um, discriminated against on multiple different levels. But I somehow made a choice that. <clears throat> What I recognised quite early on was that if I wasn't British, I wouldn't have the agency that I had, right? So as an Asian woman, if I was in Bangladesh, I would not, ha I would not be presenting at NASDAQ, right? So that, that wouldn't have happened back then. And actually, there's a very... We would, yeah, I love this picture here. <laughs> I think we... Can we go back again? Can we go... Look at the power. And then, and then can we put that... Uh, DM boots, like with sorry, how would? But do you know equity? Okay, equity. Every blimmin' podium. I was admiring this one. I was like, okay, I think I could. I wouldn't need a step on this. Ninety percent of podiums that I have spoken at in every, like Cambridge, Oxford, I've lectured. Like, like, I have to send, like, people go, well, what, what do you need, like, beforehand? And the only a thing crate. I need <laughs> is a bloody step because podiums are designed for tall blokes. And that, so, like, and I know, and, and it is a laughing matter. I mean, this is, like, my whole family are laughing. Like, we have jokes around this. But, but it's not about me being 4 foot 11. It's about equity, isn't it? And it's about, actually, should that picture from the side view look like that? Where's the dignity in that? Because the guys that went before me on that stage haven't got that picture to be laughed at. And, and that, I think, is crucial about those two pictures. Take a picture from the front, and I am powerful on stage speaking at NASDAQ trying to get some of the biggest global brands and their chief executive to talk about mental health. Look at that sideways, and then that's actually a joke. And, and, and Poppy, very briefly, because yeah. I want to open up for some conversation, but um, I know that you've taken that issue of representation um, of particularly of, of ethnic minorities to business, and you've actually taken a lot of the lessons that you've learned over the years and worked with the CBI. I mean, in a, in a nutshell, what's a that? Yeah. Just give us the, the headline on so that, because I think it's very instructive. I, I, I encourage everybody to have a quick Google on change the race ratio. So Tom and I were talking about it. Change the race ratio we launched in the middle of the pandemic, well, after, after the murder of George Floyd, to go, actually, businesses need representation at board level and not just board level, because that can often end up being tokenism. Like, mm. oh, yeah, we've got the black person, we've ticked it. They're at, at exco level and measure the changes mm. and explicitly talk, d deliver the data. And this is targeting FTSE 100 companies. So that, that was only launched, uh, I think we celebrated the first year. So a year and a half, two years. Um, but that, those are sort of side projects. because And with a president who <laughs> was... Lord Billamoria, which was quite a special thing. Yeah. I mean, you're, but back to, to your point here of yeah. representation in senior organisations, you know, the, the leader of UK's biggest business organisation. And I think, I think that's a really important in terms of not policing, yeah. but actually what businesses are saying. Because when, when George Floyd was murdered, 
everybody felt guilt and white people felt a lot of guilt particularly in senior positions because mm. they were being called out so quite quickly a lot of people put out a lot of statements in businesses mm. and i was really jarred by that because the reality of what is happening was so far away from the statements and that's what drove me to write to the cbi anyway they were already thinking about doing something and we created change the race ratio to for businesses to hold themselves to account because they sign and the community to hold itself to account on exco and net not board level representation so it was copying the 50% women um, on boards women on boards model so folks we've had a very wide ranging and i think very inspiring journey i'm sure you will agree with me into maybe what it means to be an equity activ activist um, and we've heard some personal narratives of lived experience, we've heard some very honest accounts of things like what allyship can mean, um, the importance of having an insightful boss or, or, or a teacher who recognises talent. We've heard about pioneering change in organisations and actually uh, sexual change. And we've heard about practical things that we can do, like standing up to resistance. Um, so let's widen our discussion. Um, we've got a wonderful audience here in Charlotte Street and also some hundreds online as well. So um, this expert and inspiring panel is yours to pose some questions. Um, so uh, for those in the auditorium, please just raise your hand. And when I pick you out, we'll pass the microphone over. And uh, please do wait for the microphone so everyone can hear you and say who you are and then pose your contribution, um, your question, either you know, preferably to one of the panel. So where can I, where can I start? And I'm, um, it, it might be great we could have a question that might actually even relate to the sort of grassroots issues. I don't know whether we've got anyone who'd like to ask a question. Some hands are going up. Yes, over here. And, uh, and I'll come to you at the back. Yes, sir. Oh, yeah, um, where's the, can we have a microphone over? That's great. And do Cheers. say who you are. Um, I'm Arab and I'm an electrical in Arab. And I'm just wondering, um, when you're talking about all these very sensitive issues, um, a lot of people get uncomfortable. I'm just wondering, like, what is, how do you actually bring up that conversation? How do you actually bring up these topics and have those difficult conversations? So how do you have, a, what's the safe space? How do you have the conversation? Thank you, Kate. Um, so I, I think for me, it's, it's about, and I think you used one of the words, it's about being curious. So creating that space where you can have a conversation that's based on you being equal partners and participants and, and being curious and, and setting the tone from, from, from that point of view. I think uh, I, if I speak about myself, uh, I, I was trying to make it a bit more matter of fact. So, you know, if you want to know something about me, ask. Um, but I also return the right, retain the right to say, um, I don't want to answer. And that's fine. And, and we're not used to that as adults. So kids are really curious. Oh, mummy, why does that person look like that? We answer. Um, but for us as, as, as adults and, and in Western society, it's not seen as a, a polite thing. And we pick up tones, don't we? So, you know, I could say, where are you from? And you'll say Hackney. Or you might say America. Or I heard a slightly North American accent. Yeah, but, you know, we pick up tones. Or I could say... Um, I notice your accent's really curious. Where, where are you from? It has a different tone. So we have to become a bit more skilled about our interactions and, and meeting people where they are and respecting, you know, where people want to 
go with a conversation or not. And that's what we, that's, that, that should be more comfortable because it's a matter of fact. Where do we learn that, Lorraine? Um, practice. Mm. You treat people with respect. Um, you listen to what mm. people are saying. Um, and you invite, you know, in- engagement. And I think far too often people have a narrative that's in their head. And so when mm. they ask you the question, they've kind of got the answer ready. And when you don't answer it in that way, it, it creates dissonance. So where are you from? Oh, no, Lorraine, I wasn't expecting Hackney, or I was expecting something else. Creates dissonance. But the dissonance is not yours as the person who's been asked the question. It's mm. the person that's asking the question. Does that make sense? So for me, it's, it's practice. And for people to be ready to, to engage, you know, and to have an open mind in that exchange. Mm. And that's, that's part of the problem. We come with a lot of stuff that we're expecting to hear. And when we don't hear it, that dissonance creates the discomfort and we don't own that I, I saw some can, hands you know, can I just say uh-huh. oh yes uh, here, please. on that um, so firstly Arvind great glasses um, <laughs> so I, I think that um, another thing about like have, having conversations like these is that so obviously there is there is a moral element uh, to all of this uh, right and yet when I feel like when people are having conversations that they feel are moralizing or uh, like they can just instinctively shut down uh, and you see that with the way like and it's, it always uses the indefinite article and whatnot it's like even Nigel Farage will say like I am not a racist uh, and everything like that there's always the uh beforehand which I find really weird uh, and everything, because it's that's now sort of taken on this life of its own as like capital letters the worst thing that you can be or what have you so people get like extremely defensive uh, about this whereas when, again going back to this statistic about uh, graduate employment uh, discrepancies and what have you it's like yeah there's certainly there's a moral element to all of this and that shouldn't be I'm not saying like shy away from that uh, everything but I do think that part of the way that we move to a better and more equitable system is to acknowledge that again like in addition to the moral problem there it's also spectacularly dumb and like inefficient as a way of organizing principles uh, and what have you so I think that it's worth having the conversation on both of those uh, levels rather than just what can come across as like lecturing or hectoring and that makes people close off is I was thinking, oh, do you not reckon like a better way of doing it would be? Um, so one of the questions is, how do the UK turbocharge BAME businesses and individuals with opportunities without affirmative action? The USA ring fence per- percentage spend in construction for BAME now with 150 large contractors. So as, you know, there's a question there about affirmative action, and is that actually something that we should do? And I don't know whether that's um, maybe either Lorraine or Poppy. Yeah, so um, and, uh, I'll, I'll pass you over to the expert in a second, but I, I think that until you've got contractors talking to contractors, so the, in my world it's in the financial services sector, so until you've got bankers to go into lawyers, they're all contracting all the time between them, right? So that's where business is being done. If in the contract, mental health and well-being isn't part of that. So if I'm not saying to you, Mm. actually, David, can I just check how many hours do your colleagues work? And Mm. are you going to are you do you expect your young people to graduates to work over the weekend? And how and then you you go into me. Well, actually, are you going to send me a deadline at Friday for Monday? 
If we don't have those conversations at the contracting stage, which takes care of people's mental health, then that how do you ever change the system? So you have to address the systemic inequalities and the system that perpetuates um, mental ill health. But that's exactly the same for diversity. I could be asking you, how many? Mm. Uh, what's your diversity look like on your team then? And how mm. many projects have you done that are in this world where you actually fulfilled your diversity mm. quota? And how many times? So the contracting bit is for me is where this change needs to happen systematically. Mm. Um, it's not. It's not anywhere else. Yeah, right. I would wholeheartedly concur. I think um, what we did on the games was about and what HS2 do really well and what um, Arab can do is use your, 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 your um, acumen as a, as a client driving the market and set requirements. So you can say, actually, I expect to see uh, a percentage of SMEs that are black-led or women-led in, in, that, in that process and then drive it. And that's where the, the kind of policing comes in because that's the, that's the hard numbers. And there has to be a kind of consequence if you've set up uh, an agreement that says actually we expect a percentage to be from these backgrounds and you're not achieving that, then there should be a consequence. That changes the market. So if you're not going out and doing meet the buyer and talking to contractors and saying actually these are the, these are the projects that we have in the future and we want to reach out to as wide a, 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 a set of um, suppliers as possible. If you're not doing that, then we will retain the system, and you will be, you know, continually having businesses exchange in small and close circles. David, can I just say one yes, more? Yes, sure. so, Sorry, is that okay? So, and and also, it's not. It's also very easy, and our government do this really well. Systemic change it doesn't need to happen. Systemic racism doesn't isn't exist, or systems are too big and it's too difficult, so it's going to take ten years. Actually, my challenge is then what are you personally doing, and I'll give a very quick example um, when Black Lives Matters kicked off I asked myself the question what is my responsibility in this because actually my black friends have a worse experience than me because I'm lighter shade and I'm slight different ethnicity I'm a little bit more acceptable with my with my <laughs> with my um, accent as well so it all helps but and then I thought well what am I going to do and I thought you know what well, the one thing I'm going to do is from now on I'm never going to sit on a panel that isn't gender diverse and that doesn't have so apart from asking for a step and how high is your podium I also send uh, a request for who's on the panel and what's their gender and ethnicity and as a result of that in the pandemic seven seven conferences major conferences changed the panel because so little things actually help yeah. you just stand up you actually say I'm not going to acquiesce I'm actually going to yeah. take out it, it's the and, same and, just and, actually and when you encounter in the workplace yeah, and the offer then is look I can find someone like, yeah. Yeah. so it's not like I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna go on Twitter although I might go on Twitter and go yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, it's not about embarrassing people or police no, but, but it is actually about encouraging I, I, I've got a question actually Tom if you don't mind um, which, so, because um, there's a question that says, uh, and I'm sure you, you, you'll, you'll, you'll have a response on this. How can you get councils to include equality and diversity in regeneration work, and take the opportunity to include on-job training and trades for local residents and for the wider community? So, what's the responsibility of our local authorities? Um, really good question, because I think 
when we think about this work, um, from the mayor's perspective, from, from City Hall, this is absolutely about business and the fundamental importance that has to kind of Londoners in our lives. Mm. It's also about us as public sector employers. Um, and in many ways, I think all of the things we're talking about are no different. You know, if I think about uh, the GLA, NHS partners that we work with, uh, Londoners are major employers. So both what we do for our own workforces, but the point about procurement or contracts are, are absolutely kind of conversations that we both have within our own organisation, but we're having with partners and that we, you know, there's lots of this work that there's a sort of similar strand that we are having that conversation with boroughs um, across London. Um, but actually, what are you doing as employers? But what are you doing in your contracting? What are you doing in your procurement? How are you driving um, that uh, that requirement uh, for kind of d diversity in terms of actually the, the, the money that you're spending? There's huge amounts of money that is going through the public sector um, in London. And I'm sure, Lorraine, you know, with the boroughs that you work with on the Olympics, that sort of say same sense of kind of shared ambition um, so I'd say that actually it is in many ways no different from the conversation we're having for business. What's that? What is that? Uh, not the, just the moral case, but the case of kind of, as you say, just it's dumb not to. It's, you know, what's the sense of kind of the vision here, but actually practically what does that mean, the steps that are taking in terms of their own workforces, but how they're kind of driving that through others that they work with and their role as kind of placemakers in, in each borough is, is a kind of critical uh, area of this work. I'm going to go. So please, uh, here, come uh, in. On this, because the, the thing that I instinctively thought, and I know that local government is in so many ways hamstrung by central government uh, on this, but it's like part of what would really aid this question, as with pretty much everything uh, in this country that would make the most difference to the everyday person, is the destruction of all NIMBYs and a gigantic campaign of house building, <laughs> uh, right, which I know that uh, Arab help uh, <laughs> uh, on that. But yeah. Genuinely, like I think that that on a on a policy level, it seems like that would be that's another way that we're just leaving millions of pounds on the floor constantly. I'm going to take one more question from the floor, so let's go for. A, where do I go? So difficult. Go on, Kate. You can choose. Uh, red glasses. Red glasses. Oh, so someone from the back. We've taken some questions from the oh, front. Yeah. yeah. No. There we are. Hi, I'm Alison Buttenheim. I'm a faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania in the US. And one of the great things about being at a panel like this is you get so inspired by these incredible people who've done incredible things. I'm hoping you can offer us, you know, tomorrow, like one little thing that normal people like us can take an action, be, be active in our workplace to advance this agenda. Okay, Alison, that is the most brilliant question. <laughs> Thank you, David. So I'm so delighted. That was, by the way, everybody was not staged. That can be, that can be our, our roundup question. Um, so, I mean, who wants to go first? Well, I feel like, I guess that you could look, so let's take another one of the statistics that hmm. you brought up of, was it like, Nine percent uh, of mm. the engineering workforce is from ethnic minority mm. background, despite. And I was like, oh, nine percent. Probably that's not that off. Like it, nationally, we're about fifteen percent. It's it's close. Enough. And then you said, despite twenty-seven percent of relevant graduates exactly. being from those backgrounds, uh, right? And I was like, oh no, that's much worse <laughs> uh, than I thought, right? So with something like this, I guess, always like. Uh, you, you can work out that, right, if I'm running this company and stuff and 9% of our, despite the 27% and everything, like you could say, what, does it, does it match? And if not, why not? 
uh, right? So in some in some cases, there might be a perfectly reasonable explanation. Like if you had said to me that, well, 15% of the population are from ethnic minority backgrounds, but only 5% of relevant graduates are. And I'm like, oh, right, that, that might have some, that might be a reasonable explanation. And then actually things need to get sorted further downstream uh, in the education system, etc. But when you reveal that actually it's entirely the other way around, you go, ah, that's a practical impact that employers can have in the present day um, and not just waiting for the next generation of... Uh, but it does show there's a market failure, effectively, mm. in there, which is, I, I suppose, why also action is sometimes actually really required, um, as we've been hearing from the Mayor of London. Um, your, what, your, Ramon, Poppy? You want me to start? No, 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 you go last. You're going to make the best point. <laughs> Look, so I think be a good ally, and I use a model called recognize, interrupt, uh, repair. And it's read the book by Dr. Nancy Dome. She's a race activist and educator in, 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 in um, the US. Um, and it, and she, uh, so recognize, like you will instinctively, gut wise, know that something's wrong, right? So, so recognize it, because often we go, oh, that happened, oh, busy. Recognize it, and then go, I'm just, I'm just wondering, did you just say, or did that just happen? I just want to clarify what I heard here, and then pause and work out how you can repair that. And repair can be as simple as listening to a person and going, how, how does that feel for you? like just letting someone offload or mm. sacking the company that's going, oh, black people, I think it's a bit hard, isn't it? So I just, I feel like like the, the recognize, interrupt, repair is the model that I, I try to live my life by in terms of being an ally to men, to women, to black people, to whoever, but be an ally. That's a brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Poppy. And on that note, we shall... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just to build... I mean, I think it's do something, right? Um, you, you made a comment earlier, David, around, you know, it, it's insufficient to say I'm not racist. It, we have to be proactive. We have to do something. So wherever you are in your site of influence, do something. Call it out. Recognise it. Interrupt it. Repair it. You, fantastic. Be bold. Be brave. Sit with that discomfort. It's okay, actually. Understand what's going on in your head that means makes you discomfort, and do the work. But do something. It's absolutely in the twenty first century. What day is it? It's the eighth of February, twenty twenty three. It's not acceptable to do nothing. It's not acceptable to um, sit by where there is discrimination there is inequity, it's not acceptable. And if you find it acceptable, then question yourself. So do something, however little or big, do something. Don't be um, you know, inert or be passive, do something. I think that's a fantastic message. Um, thank you very much. And thank, thank you, firstly, to our amazing panel, to Poppy here, Lorraine. Um, Thank you to our audience and online. Go on, give yourself a round of applause. We hope you enjoyed listening to the first instalment in our Good Morning Design series. We would like to say a special thank you to our guests, Poppy Jamin OBE, 
Lorraine Martins OBE and Ahir Shah, and also to Kate Hall and her team at Arup for hosting the Equity Activists at their London headquarters. You can find out more about the Equity Activists and future events in the Good Morning Design series on our website www.designthinkersacademy.co.uk. Thank you for listening and we look forward to sharing another podcast with you soon.